Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, to Spring to baseball season. I'm your host, Lawrence Santoro, and I... Last week, I may have given the impression that I bore a personal animus toward the game of baseball. Oh, come in, come in. Doff your sweaters, rain gear, grab the usual, don't step on Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, and snuggle. Okay? Now, back to my apology... I do not hate baseball. I love, well, if not the game, I love the idea of the game. I could say the same of many things, of course. Children, for example. No, baseball has magic in it. In abstract, it is a universe that can exist in your head. A whole game, an entire season, can be constructed with numbers. So many hits, so many home runs, so many errors, at-bats, bases on balls, etc., etc., it goes on. The entirety of a year of baseball can exist in the statistics of player, team, league. Look, find Robert Coover's The Universal Baseball League and you'll see what I mean. The fact that a game exists separate from time, well, that's magic, too. There are no halves, quarters, periods fixed to a clock. Things being equal, at the bottom of any inning past the ninth, a game can go on, back and forth, forever. And the field, well, some dimensions are dictated, yes, the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate, 60 feet, 6 inches. The distance between the bases, 90 feet. 
The angles all right, all fixed. The distance from home to the grass line, the width of the infield dirt. But the outer dimensions of the field, they're not mandated. The foul lines that extend from the first and third baselines, they extend to infinity, diverging continuously, one gigantic field that wraps the earth or extends to the stars. Well, there, there are logical limits, of course, but each ballpark has its own personality. Look at Fenway Park in Boston, the Green Monster, the Triangle, or the, the outfield ivy of Wrigley Field. But to the main point, the game as played is a genetic code of numbers and talk that goes on about the numbers. Stats, of course, do not suggest the experience of any given game. The chill out in left field during a season's early games, the, the wind out of right field that bends a home run foul, the sweat in your eyes such that you missed that incredible double play. Well, the numbers don't give you the taste of a dog with a clash of iridescent Chicago relish dolloped with ballpark mustard. And the talk, games, because of the numbers, live forever. That's when stats and personal experience blend. The grand slam Ernie Banks hit on your 12th birthday. The agony of the Philadelphia Phillies, 1964. That's magic, too. And we'll not even talk about the Sam Cianis curse on the Cubs when his goat was not admitted to the friendly confines of Wrigley Field. They tried to lift it a few decades ago when the Cubs got perilously close to a pennant, but, well, such things just aren't that easy to take care of. Of course, that magic, all the good spirits around the game crumble when owners, promoters, PR flax, and, alas, the fans I spoke of last week get into that matrix of number and wonder that is the idea of baseball. No. Well, okay. Again, there is no theme here tonight. Tonight's tale is not a baseball one. Fact is, when I asked Cher if there might be a baseball tale to terrify somewhere in the hopper, she was shocked at the notion that such a subcategory could exist, baseball horror. Well, we've had one on Tales to Terrify last season, uh, last year, I mean. See if you can find it. Go ahead. I've written one, uh, The Ephus Pitch and Hanging High Fly of the Consolidated Catbirds, which can be found woven into the fabric of my accidental novel, Just North of Nowhere, and which deals with the town of Bluffton's time-shifting library. Shut up, Larry. Baseball, I guess more than any sport other than perhaps boxing, has inspired writers for years, decades, it's a game of numbers, yes, but numbers that are woven into memory and into words, to sweat, discussion, argument, and into magics, finally. Stephen King's novella, Blockade Billy, is one. Robert Coover, whom I mentioned earlier, he writes dark baseball tales. W.P. Kinsella writes sweetly fantastical baseball tales. A significant theme, by the way, in all those is the resurrection of the past— and there is Michael Bishop's wonderful, brittle innings in which... No, 
Oh, no. I'll let you discover that one for yourselves. Brittle Innings, Michael Bishop. It is a wonder of a tale. It's both dark and sunny. But I digress. The point is, we have no baseball horror on deck at present. So, by the way, if you have one, let us know. Okay? Now, look at the art up on the wall. We've removed the EC Comics baseball art from our webpage and now have a lovely, mysteriously unsettling piece that is from artist Vince Natale. Vince Natale has been creating illustrations and fine art professionally since 1985. He attended the School of Visual Arts in New York City and graduated from the Ducrette School of Art in Plainfield, New Jersey. His illustration work ranges from magazine editorials to book covers. He also does fine art and spans the genres of romance, horror, fantasy, science fiction, portraiture, military subjects. Vince has also created many illustrations for advertising clients in fashion, pharmaceuticals, and high-tech. He's received numerous awards for his commercial and his fine artwork and has been represented in several annual exhibitions of the Society of Illustrators in New York and Los Angeles. And his work also appears regularly in the Spectrum annual book of the Best in Fantastic Art, as well as in various other art publications. In addition to having produced work for private commissions, his personal and gallery work has found homes in many private collections in the U.S. and abroad. Alongside his professional artist-slash-illustrator duties, Vince is an instructor at the Woodstock School of Art. How did we get him to let us post some of his work on the wall of the nook? I have no idea. I asked. He said, yes. Well, thanks for doing so, Vince. We have a few more of his pieces on tap, so you will see more of him. I like this one for this week because you'll see. Before we get into this week's tale to terrify, let us hear again from Mr. Martin Munt. Marty has a rare offering in his not-a-regular-movie-review segment. This is a not-a-regular-movie-review of a film he actually likes. Marty? Not a regular movie review by Martin Munt. The Avengers. Warning, I spoil plot points in this review, so don't blame me if you keep listening. Avengers good. Well, there you have it, my review. That says it all if I pare things down to the essence of what the Hulk would say. Of course, Avengers good, Avengers bad is a judgment call that the Hulk can just lay out there all naked and unsupported by example and theory and expect to get only nodding heads in response because his statements are backed up implicitly with Hulk smash. My statements, regrettably, are not. I must back up pronouncements like Avengers good with facts and figures and amusing anecdotes and pithy aphorisms in order to demonstrate my point, or really, to paraphrase James Elroy, what fucking good am I to you? In other words, 
the Hulk has a way with words, while I do not. So I find myself obliged to provide an actual review of The Avengers, and yet I discovered while watching it that it was not just a movie, but an experience. And here in this review, I'm going to look back on that entire experience, because while the movie by itself was excellent and rousing entertainment, the overall experience, the life journey that could be called The Avengers, was less than that. It was a strange and deadly encounter with the naked radioactive stupidity that powers the universe, the degenerate perversion of Western civilization itself, even possibly the ragged leading edge of the zombie cannibal apocalypse into which we are all devolving. Yes, I think you understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking precisely about my experiences with the rest of the audience members in the movie theater with me. The half-wits, the drooling mouth-breathers, the wretched boobs who have long ago spiraled into the tar pits of arrogant selfishness, the Morlocks, the mole people, the gremlins, the abominable snow people, the hideous screaming kaiju that haunt all our nightmares, miscreants, evildoers, juvenile delinquents, the general, all-around slobbering ne'er-do-wells. May they be forever cursed with a thousand curses. You know exactly who I'm talking about. People who use their damnable eye berries, black phones, super tooths, and whatever other blinky, flashy, whiz-bang, techno-strokotronic devices that people these days simply cannot do without for a fucking single fucking moment. So they fiddle-fuck around with their brightly lit, shiny, happy screens while the movie is playing the entire time the movie is playing without regard for the fact that the movie is indeed fucking playing. But I, I understand. You imagine that I am exaggerating. I've been known to exaggerate. But hear my tale and decide for yourselves. First, however, I must begin with a short but engrossing digression into the remote past, the 1950s. Who here remembers Frederick Wortham? Don't be shy. Raise your hands if you do. For those of you who don't remember him, he was a psychiatrist who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent in 1954, which blamed comic books for, if I remember correctly, communism, polio, evil, Satan, perversion, juvenile delinquency, murder, rape, the crucifixion of Jesus, atomic war, the coming zombie apocalypse, fluoridation, and pretty much everything else that was, is, or ever will be wrong with the world. And sex, I think. And he helped sanitize the comic book industry. In other words, he was the ultimate supervillain. He out-Luthored Lex Luthor. Highly influential back then. A wingnut discredited crackpot today. The Avengers would probably have given him a massive coronary. Let me put it this way. To Frederick Wortham, Avengers bad. But with various case studies, copious footnotes, and an extensive bibliography attached. Why do I bring up dusty old crank Dr. Wortham? Because I think he may very well have been right after all. But meanwhile, back at the movie, I think Mark Ruffalo was the best Bruce Banner Hulk yet to grace the silver screen. He projected a very appealing mix of self-effacing, witty intelligence as Dr. Banner, and as the Hulk, he kind of looked like Mark Ruffalo. I found that resemblance hugely entertaining. I also thought he had three of the best moments in the movie. Best moment number one, the obvious one, his statement of puny God after giving Loki the thorough thrashing he so richly deserved. 
That line was a real crowd pleaser, Nuff said. I'm going to assume everybody listening to this has seen the movie and knows this scene. If not, I recommend you go see the movie right now. I will wait here until you do so. Back already? Good, now we can continue. I mentioned self-effacing intelligence. Well, he plays a scientist and spits out the obligatory techno-jargon with ease, all the while coming across as comfortably brilliant, and not at all obnoxious about how smart he is, like some Avengers I could mention. Cough, Tony Stark, cough. To me, Bruce Banner's humanity comes through in the scene where he has transformed from the Hulk and has to borrow a pair of pants from Harry Dean Stanton. Mark Ruffalo pulls off both the top scientist and the pants borrower equally well. It's not easy to accept badly needed pants with dignity, but he does. Then there was the second of the Hulk's excellent moments. In the midst of the battle with the Chitauri, when Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk on cue and he says, I'm always angry. Both a nice line and a nice indicator of character, I thought. And this particular moment spoke to me personally because I'm always angry too, only I never get to do anything cool and vengeful and ultra-violent about my anger. I only get to stew and sputter about it, and, you know, take it in the ass because I'm not the Hulk, which I recognize is probably on the whole a good thing, but still there are times, you know? For example, I've been to the movies before where one of my fellow humans pays his $10 and then chooses to strip down to his reptile brain and begin flashing a blinky, flashy electronic doodad around in the dark theater with no concern whatsoever for the disturbing light show he may be causing for his fellow humans. And why, I ask you, would you want to sit your skinny, chuckle-headed ass down in front of $220 million or more of top-notch acting talent and special effects extravaganza if, instead, you're going to squint down at a one-inch square iBerry screen and piddle text messages with your thumb brains? Ah, but in this showing of the Avengers, I was joined by not just one fine young numbskull, but half a dozen of this generation's pinnacles of electronic whiz kids, the future leaders of America, all of whom I thought couldn't possibly be so stupid, oblivious, inconsiderate, moronic, uncivil, idiotic, pinch-brained, and mouth-breathing drool monkeys as they seem to be. I have more confidence in our younger generation than that. They will run the world someday, shouldering vast and terrible responsibilities. Surely they can endure a 143-minute movie without fiddle-fucking around with their crack phones and distracting everyone else around them for no reason at all other than that their atrophied attention spans had bowed out for the entire length of the movie. Surely. But you already know the answer to that question. Surely they could not. These future senators, scientists, and sociopaths just couldn't stop massaging their phones and caressing their phones and swabbing their phones as if they were glow-in-the-dark genitals sticking up out of their zippers. Pardon the image, but if it's in my head, then it's damn well going to be in yours, too. And all this, I swear to Jeebus, even after I asked one of the little cretins, politely, to please stop. This prize asshat sat a few seats to my left during the entire movie and kept his delightful device burning throughout. The manufacturer would be gratified to know that the battery is long-lasting and the screen bright and sharp. He flashed it like an Apache talking with a mirror from a distant hilltop. Except, of course, he was no more than six feet away from me, and I had no desire whatsoever to speak with him. 
Another moviegoer I shall call ass for brains sat a few rows in front of me and used her black screen or whatever the fuck it was since it was the size of a small television set and flared as bright as a Saturn V liftoff, and she swung it around and about like a disco mirror ball. Four other feral children of the digital night shone their bright, starry devices around the not-very-dark theater in an impressive and powerful constellation called, I think, Technocrapola. I lasted about an hour of asshat boy's execrable device flashing at me from the top of Apache Mountain before I'd had enough. Now understand, I am not a confrontational kind of person. I do not willingly talk to people I do not know. Heck, I only reluctantly talk to people I do know. But Asshat Boy had gotten under the bottom nerve of my bottom nerve by that time, so I got up and explained to him, politely, because I try to be unfailingly polite, that he shouldn't use his phone in a theater, and could he please shut it off? You're welcome. He agreed. He lied, of course, the little Tea Party sociopath kaiju fuck. Mind you, Asshat Boy was 40 years my junior, and it simply did not seem to faze him one little bit that he was openly lying to me. I am not a father. I have no children. I am not used to children lying to my face while openly continuing to do the thing that they have just said they would stop doing right in front of me. Oddly, there seemed to be no defiance or provocation in his attitude. Instead, he radiated complete unconcern, or perhaps blissful oblivion regarding my presence. I was an irritant about which he would do the minimal amount of activity necessary to rid himself of trouble, and then go back to absorb himself in his damnable electronics, when I would once again become irrelevant, and he would be happy. Which he did. So, what was I to do with Asshat Boy? now and future Galtian hero, short of the actual theft of his device, or perhaps the physical assault and murder committed on his person, as satisfying as those actions might have made me. The child clearly had no more concern for me than he did for the fictional characters flickering across the silver screen, and he had paid admission to ignore them in favor of his crackberry. So, after another five minutes of Apache signals, not to mention the other five people in the constellation Technocrapola, which continued unabated, I got out of my seat and tromped all the way to the front of the Googleplex, which is rather like humping it from one end of the TARDIS to the other, and complained to management. Management, as it happened, was a skinny, dull-eyed lad not much older than Asshat Boy. But his eyes weren't sutured to a crackberry, so I took what I could get. And what I got was management's sincere assurances that they would come and sincerely and assuredly do something about the situation. They lied like stinking lemurs, of course. So, I was treated to an ongoing fury of eyeberries and black phones and whiz-tooths and other hot damn techno-wizardry that people simply cannot live without for a fucking second and a quarter for the entire length of The Avengers. The movie was not improved by the addition of what were essentially multiple extra special effects consisting of unrelated and unreadable graphics spread in a wide, bright arc in front of me. Which brings me back to Frederick Wortham. Comic books, I think, actually have rotted out the brains of the people in this country. Our morals have degenerated into stinking piles of fish guts and smegma. The ability to interact socially has deteriorated beyond the point of no return. We live in the midst of a post-apocalyptic horror show world of cannibal perversion, yada, yada, yada. I get that. But the ability to interact socially in a movie theater? Come on, people. 
That's the last vestige of human decency gone down the sinkhole of depravity if we can't sit in a movie theater, stare at a screen, and not manage to piss off the person sitting next to us in the process. And seriously, why would anybody pay to get in if you're going to fiddle fuck around with a crack phone the whole time? That's taking stupid to a whole new dark and frightening sublevel of dumb. All you have to do is sit there. You don't even have to keep your eyes open. You can fall asleep, have a stroke, or even die and still be a successful, civilized moviegoer. You have to work at it to be an asshat. I fear Frederick Wortham was right. The Avengers and similar movies, books, TV shows, and comics have indeed destroyed our civilization. Damn them. Because it really was a pretty excellent movie. I liked it a lot. But just thinking about that asshat boy has put me in such a foul mood that I feel like I should complain about... something. But what? Robert Downey Jr. was great as Tony Stark. Funny. Comfortable in the role, easygoing, and at the end, self-sacrificing, as if he'd actually learned something from Bruce Banner and grown as a person. So there's nothing to complain about there. Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner... They were both excellent. Ms. Johansson had that good scene with Loki in his cell that reminded me of the scene in Silence of the Lambs between Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter, where Loki tries to get under her skin, except it doesn't work. It was a nice scene, and together I could almost see Black Widow and Hawkeye becoming the Mr. and Mrs. Kravitz of the Avengers. Nothing to complain about there. And Chris Hemsworth as Thor is more of a superhero than he was in his own standalone movie, because I think here he doesn't have Jane Foster to smooth off the mead-fueled Viking edges he normally possesses. And he's got Loki right in his face a lot more, which would make anyone testy. I'm still 100% in favor of some sweet, sweet, hard rock theme music for Thor, though. See my previous review for Thor. Ah, Loki. There's something I can complain about. Really nothing about Tom Hiddleston's performance, mind you. He found just the right loathsome and obnoxious center for the character. No, what I couldn't get past was Loki's hair. This is Hollywood, for Christ's sakes. Jean Harlow, Veronica Lake, Anne Margaret, Jennifer Aniston, Hugh Grant. In a word, hair. A Norse god shouldn't look like the weak old corpse of some stew bum dragged out of Bubbly Creek in Chicago in the middle of February. Correction, worse than the weak old corpse of some stew bum dragged out of Bubbly Creek in Chicago in the middle of February. I can hear the meeting now. Let's get regular Hollywood people to do everybody's hair, except for Tom. We don't like Tom. For Tom, we'll get the new guy from the hair butchery down on Sepulveda, whose technique involves liberally coating hair with ox fat, combing it out with all thumbs, sweeping everything behind the ears, and then letting it set for a week. Voila! It's called the Fierce Panhandle. Come on, Hollywood, you can do better than that. But at least we know why he wears that hat with the giant-ass horns on it so much. To hide his hair. But I exaggerate for comedic effect. Loki's hair disturbed me, it's true, but only in that obsessive-compulsive way I have where I see something being done so grotesquely wrong that I want to reach out and just fix it. But I can control myself. Really, I can I didn't try to fix Loki's hair because I understand that it was just a movie. 
and I didn't clobber asshat boy with my fists until he lay bleeding and writhing in agony on the floor. Because I can control myself. But I exaggerate for comedic effect. All right, now that I've got my complaint muscles all warmed up, here's complaint number two concerning the characters Coulson, Captain America, and Nick Fury. Does it concern the performances of Clark Gregg, Chris Evans, and Samuel L. Jackson? No, they're all excellent. No complaints there. My complaint involves motivation stemming from Coulson's death. He's a really good character, and when he dies, it's a shock, and something important should come from it. What does come from it is Nick Fury manipulating the Avengers into doing what he wants them to do. Sure, it happens to be the right thing to do, but still, Fury manipulates them into it. He kind of becomes the Avengers version of Loki. Even Fury's second-in-command, Agent Hill, well played by Colby Smulders, seemed to find his means justifying the end behavior troubling. Well, I found it disturbing myself, though who knows? Perhaps this is how the writers wanted me to feel. I can't say, though I found that idea off-putting as well. Better all around, in my opinion, though no one ever asks me for my opinion, as Joss Whedon or Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams even once called me and said, Hey, Marty, pal, friend, what do you think? No, not once, I tell you. Well, in my unsolicited opinion, Coulson's death should have produced an organic, spontaneous feeling among the Avengers themselves to do what was right, led by Captain America, because really, what is Captain America for if not to be an inspirational leader? Instead, they got deceived into it by Nick Fury. Oh, well. Maybe he's intended to be the Loki of the Avengers. I don't know. I rarely read comic books anymore. And I also don't know where future movies are going, so maybe some foreshadowing was intended. But it still didn't feel right. But if Captain America had stepped up to the plate with some leadership skills, I bet he could even have brought crusty old Frederick Wortham around. A lost opportunity, in my unsolicited opinion. But what do I know? Nothing. That's what makes the movies I write such brilliant thumbs-up doorstops. So, all right, I feel as if I'm shirking my comedic responsibilities by not complaining about something in a humorous way since that last complaint got way too serious. Except, I got nothing. Avengers good, you know? Oh, wait, wait, here's one. An invisible flying aircraft carrier. I love the concept. And yes, this is going to turn into a complaint. But first, some deep background. I misspent my youth playing games like Sea Power and Avalon Hill's Jutland and Wooden Ships and Iron Men and pushing one twelve hundredth scale lead models of warships around a pool table refighting World War I and World War II naval battles over and over again throughout my high school years. By myself. Yes, I love the old historical ultraviolence at sea. And yes, too, I was a lonely, peculiar, and probably very troubled teenager. But that's really beside the point. I never broke any laws that anyone can prove. Case closed. The point is, an invisible flying aircraft carrier in combat in a Hollywood blockbuster could have been the most beautiful thing I have ever seen inside a movie theater since Jenny Agutter and Logan's Run. And can I say that a more visible role would have been much appreciated for Ms. Agutter in this movie? My apologies to Miss Johansson and Miss Smulders on this count. They are beautiful women and fine actresses, but honestly, I can see them whenever I like in any number of other movies or TV shows, but I can't see an invisible flying aircraft carrier in combat, and that's the point. I didn't see it in combat, 
and not seeing it made me sad. And by the way, if you're going to show the number 64 on your invisible flying aircraft carrier, why not just call it the Constellation and say you retrofitted it to make it fly? Anyway, I so anticipated the upcoming battle between the invisible flying aircraft carrier and one of the Chitauri flying armored snaky centipede ship thingies, and I anticipated, and I anticipated, and it never happened. Come on, Hollywood. Absolute film gold got dropped on the cutting room floor like a baby with a soft head. In other words, you'll be regretting that one for a long time. Just think of it, you could have stuck some 16-inch Iowa-class battleship turrets on the Constellation, along with some harpoon missiles and phalanx CIWS Gatling guns, and sailed it right over Manhattan into combat with an armored, snaky, centipede ship thingy, and had F-15s and F-22s and Harriers and Marines and shit flying all around the Empire State Building like in King Kong, and crap, now I'm just making myself feel even sadder than sad. Oh well, as I have so often realized during the course of my often sad and lonely and peculiar and disappointed life, I am not just a niche market, I am a sliver of a fragment of a splinter of a shaving of a niche market. Biggest waste of an opportunity for an invisible flying aircraft carrying a movie I can remember, and I own the DVD of Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, although I suppose that flying aircraft carrier wasn't really invisible. Well, and there you have it, my review of the Avengers, with facts, figures, amusing anecdotes, and pithy aphorisms. I liked it, and I would see it again, which just goes to prove my point that Frederick Wortham was correct, and that we have all become morally demented dope fiends these days, driven to bottom feed with the degenerate likes of latent homosexual superheroes. Ah, oh, well. I guess I'll just have to start taking my own electronic device to the theater with me. A cattle prod. And by the way, in case you thought I forgot Mark Ruffalo's shining moment number three is Bruce Banner the Hulk, I didn't. He tells a wonderful little story about a moment of despair as Bruce when he decided to end it all, so he shot himself in the head, except that the other guys spit out the bullet. It seems he can't even kill himself. The price of a bullet? Probably about a dollar. The looks on the faces of the other Avengers while he's telling this story? Priceless. Even Tony Stark couldn't muster a smart-ass comment. So how did the movie get on track again? A computer started beeping. So I guess everybody is grateful for a little annoying electronic distraction now and again if it's done right. But if you see me in the theater in the future, I'll still be packing my cattle prod, because I've accepted my destiny as a twitchy, sensory-overloaded, dysfunctional, cross-wired, delinquent deviate. And I guarantee you, that as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to using electronic devices in theaters, you don't know how to do it right. But with my cattle prod, I damn well do. The End Martin Munt is a nasty, warped, zero-temperature so-and-so who can't put two words together without first snickering, then slitting their... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Throats. This guy is far too hip for his own good. No wonder reading him is such a pleasure. I quote from Mr. Peter Straub on a collection of Marty's stories as they appeared in a tiny cardboard-covered, orange-jacketed Twilight Tales chapbook back, well, forever ago. Mr. Munt's Lovecraftian novella, The Cranston Gibberer, recently went up on Kindle and at other fine imaginary bookstores, I imagine, for less than three dollars. Well, a penny less than three dollars, anyway. Excellent. Apart from that, Marty's got a zombie novel out and about, reanimated Americans, as well as a few collections, including The Dark Underbelly of Hymns, Candy in the Dumpster, his play, The Jackie Sex Knife Show, was produced by the Crooked Twilight Theater Company in Chicago, and more of his work can be found in various anthologies here, there, and nowhere. That little chapbook, by the way, mentioned above with the Peter Straub blurb, was cleaned up and expanded into a lovely ebook, and that's The Crawling Abattoir. And just go find him. Martin Munt. He's worth the effort. Marty has been a nook regular since our first hour, when he unnerved us all with his wonderfully wifty tale, Chair. Remember that? Well, ever since, there have been provided tales of Munt to shiver and amuse us here in the flickering dark. Thanks, Marty. Let there be more. Fiction. Another old Chicago chum provides the evening's fiction on this spring's awakening eve here in the nook. John Everson. John, too, has been a regular contributor to Tales to Terrify. He was part of our old weekly writer's reading camp, Twilight Tales. 
And it's always a pleasure to welcome him back. John is a Stoker Award-winning novelist and short story writer, and in fact, he's a multiple nominee for the Stoker Award. In 2004, he won for his first novel, Covenant. He was also nominated in 2007 for his short story, Letting Go. Oh, yeah, listen. One more thing. As with much of John's writing, tonight's tale is rich with a poetic sensibility and psychosexual imagination. So be warned. There's a lot of imagery in this. And seriously, it is a truly horrifying tale. Here is John Everson's Blood Roses. Tanya loved the roses. She only wished she could look at them. Every morning, her husband Mel guided her down the stairs from her bedroom, through the house, and down the rocky steps to the rose garden. Let me help you with that, he'd say, and tenderly lift the shirt over her head, undo her brassiere, and slide her pants to the ground. With a kiss and a pet, he'd send her forth, into the tangle of thorns and leaves and sharp, rocky earth. Tanya loved to run naked through the rose garden. She loved to feel their feathery touches, their sharp bites. Once she had been able to smell the humid sugar of their perfume and see the vibrant smears of crimson across their petals. But that was long ago. Now Tanya could only experience her rose garden by touch, and so she drew the prickling bushes to her bosom and bled with every kiss of their stingy boughs. She'd been sixteen when it happened. Skin of virgin vanilla, cheeks blushed bright cherry, eyes like sapphires glinting against the stark satin of her raven hair. The boy then had been called Marshall, and she met him late each evening, a mute moon the only spectator to their urgent exploring gropings. They whispered and laughed and lay down on the bricks to stare out at the stars. I wonder who's out there. They said aloud, inside, thinking, I wonder who's in here. She had ached for the taste of his tongue as the tickle of fallen rose blossoms caressed her neck. Each night after ten, she would climb down the trellis beneath her bedroom and wait on the brick patio by the fountain. She always heard him before he arrived, heavy shoes clicking like flint strikes against the stone. She was smoking inside, nearly ready to go up. Each night as they kissed and necked, he was tender with her and warm, at first. But as their meetings lengthened, as the moon waxed, his fingers strayed from tremulous sneak attacks beneath her shirt to bolder thrusts beneath her skirts, and he grew insistent. One night, as the moon blinded the owls with its full searchlight shine, he pressed for more. First, he stripped her favorite blue T-shirt from her completely, a bold move there just yards from her father's back door. Wait, she whispered, but not too convincingly. Soon her jeans were gone too, and his own flesh fully exposed to the wan tan of the moon, and open to the massage of her hands. 
A tremor ran through her belly at this unfamiliar territory, but still his flesh felt soft and delicate, yet solid as wood. She could feel herself heat and grow with his watering kisses, her tight bud engorging with the first passion to unravel into a satin-silk flower of invitation. But then, with the pass of a cloud over the fairy light, she shivered and whispered, No. He seemed not to hear and pressed himself tighter to her. She felt the rose of passion wither and scorch and pushed with tight fists against his shoulders again. No. Yes, he answered this time through gritted teeth. I can't wait any more. A pain shot through her like a thousand barbs of thorn, and Tanya at last opened her mouth to scream, only to have it filled with his tongue, his thick, sour tongue that suddenly tasted not so delicate and fine, but fat and base and ashy with the flavor of cigarettes. She panicked then, and struck him in the ear with a fist, but he didn't relent. In fact, her struggles only seemed to encourage him. Replacing his mouth with a gritty palm, he held her to the brick as he took her, impervious to her cries and wiggles and wide eyes. Finally, she bit down on his hand, hard, so that she felt the skin give way. The hand yanked backwards, but rather than nurse's wound, her sweet and gentle marshal brought that hand back down in a closed fist and struck her fast and ruthless in the mouth. And again. With his hands on her neck then, he kissed her, but not with the blending of a lover, rather with the penetrating jabs of a conqueror savoring his bloody victory. Then he pulled back to ride her in animal anxiousness, lifting her head with each thrust and slamming it back to the brick with each release. Tanya felt the warmth pooling beneath her head, at the same time as it slicked and gathered beneath her buttocks. Her heart was screaming in horror, and her flesh screamed in pain. How could this be happening? How could she have been so wrong about this boy, this wicked young man? She swam in a sea of black filth, every light touch and kiss of the past nights re-experienced as a violation, a betrayal. There were stars of hurt in her eyes as the heady scent of roses engulfed her like a savior cloud as Marshall came to climax. She breathed it in and savored it as if to blot out the knowledge of the situation, eyes closed, mind seeking another world. And then its sweet perfume turned sickly in her nose, icy sharp in its character, like rotting candy. Distantly, she felt him remove himself, heard the rustle of his jeans dragged across stone, heard him murmur, shit. She kept her eyes closed as he scurried away into the night. When she woke next, Tanya strained to see through the blackness, but could not. Her nose felt sniffy, but she could not smell the roses. Marshall, she called. Then, Mom? The nurse's hand on her brow was cool. You're in the hospital, dear. How do you feel? Could you turn on the light? Tanya asked. I can't see. There was no answer at first, and then she heard the nurse talking to someone at the far end of the room whispers, and the tongue clicks of pity. It may pass, she heard a woman say. But it didn't. Her world remained a black void where only sound could enter. Tanya was alone in a room without windows. Her food had no taste. The roses had no smell. 
and no color. But she could feel them. It became her only release, to press the world against herself in a smothering embrace. You're there, she sometimes murmured. You're there. I can feel you. Tanya met Mel at a special education class. He was the teacher, and she loved to listen to the mellifluous tones of his voice. It was caramel and chocolate, molasses and cream. She already loved him when he told her she was pretty one night, as she stood in the foyer waiting for the familiar step of her mother, who came each night to drop her off and pick her up. She felt her skin flush, but at the same time shrugged away from his compliment. No, she said softly, but thank you. He took her hand in his, wide, leathery, strong, and pressed it tightly. Yes, you are. Do you like coffee? I can't taste it, she deflected. You can feel hot and cold, can't you? In a month, her mother was no longer driving her to school. In six, Tanya was standing against the wall in their kitchen, listening as piece by piece of her twenty-five years was carried past landing with thuds and rattles and grunts in the bed of Mel's van. I'll take care of her, he promised her mother. Tanya imagined the wrinkles playing like braille across her mother's falling cheeks. Do, was all she said. Mel fed her ice cream and coffee that she couldn't taste but could feel. He massaged her feet. Mel read Sylvia Plath and Jackie Collins to her. Mel seemed to smile with his voice at every move she made. But more importantly, Mel took her to the rose garden. I can't, she insisted the first time they drove to the conservatory. It's where? I just can't. Taste the air with your tongue, he advised. Feel the scent and the humidity on your skin. It's healthy, even if you can't see them or smell them. In the end, she gave in and walked with him tremulously on nearly even flagstone steps. Once she stumbled at the rough rise of a heavy stone and he held her upright by her elbow. She shook with relief and fear, but as they wove deeper into the strange maze of muffled glass houses, she realized he was right. Each house was like a special pressure chamber. The air changed its feel growing Florida muggy and Phoenix arid and Oregon cool damp with each whoosh of the doors behind them. Its flavors eluded her, but she could feel its taste. The heat of the sun through the glass panes warmed her head and neck, and the clasp of his hand on hers led her to explore the more ethereal aspects of the garden, if not its view. Touch this, he commanded, moving her hand by encircling her entire wrist and placing it in contact with ferns and foliage, buds and stems. And then, touch this, he said, and laughed when she drew back in pain. Every rose has its thorns, he said then, and hugged her to him. That wasn't very nice, she pouted, pushing him away. But he kissed her and apologized. If you don't feel the pointed things in life, you'll soon take the soft ones for granted, he said. This made sense to her, and she found she loved him more. Can I feel your pointed thing? She giggled, running a hand up his thigh. Yes, he promised. But instead, he led her to feel the bark of a sequoia tree. It was rough against the back of her hand, and she pressed against it, 
drawing its details inside herself until her hand was raw. Her blood flowed hot through her arms, and she knew that she had crossed a precipice, a divide. She had spent years learning how to avoid bumping into furniture, years hiding from the sharp edges of the world, years hiding from Marshall. She wasn't hiding anymore. Let's get married, she announced, and in a house filled with unseen armies of roses, she listened as his voice trembled and he said simply, Yes. I'm going to grow you a rose garden. Mel said one day, as he lightly ran a knife along the bottom slope of her cleavage. It was a game they had developed. She had taken his message to heart. Every rose has its thorn. She would not try to savor the rose without first feeling its thorns. It made the end pleasure of the petals so much more intense. Likewise, she would not make love to Mel without first snipping her nerve ends raw. He would carve sweet nothings in her skin, or decorate her with forests of twining, twisting pins. Each sharp prick of her flesh made her face contract, and yet the rush of the blood through her heart made her beg him not to stop. Each week they played the game anew, the goal changing with every implement Mel used. The pain made her feel alive, broke her out of her black detachment from everything around. Can you stand forty pins? he would ask. Yes, she answered in a tiny voice. Forty-five. If she cried uncle before reaching the number, she lost. If she let him go further, she won. Either way, when the game was over and his kisses finally swelled her lips and tightened her nipples, she ended in ecstasy. I would like a rose garden, she admitted presently. I could feel their petals against my skin every day then. And their thorns, he added. Yes, she said, and their thorns. The first time they walked together in the garden, the rose bushes had no buds. Tanya ran her hands up their thin stems and winced as the blood ran in rivulets down her arm. They're all thorns, she complained. Give them time he said. First come the thorns, and then the flowers. And they did come. The garden grew with the breadth of her belly, which Mel had seated with a child. And in her fifth month, Tanya felt the first perfect satin-smooth bloom. Oh, Mel, she praised. It feels wonderful. It's softer than a feather and more velvety than velvet. He laughed and promised, Soon it will all be in bloom just like you. When the contractions racked her body with feral bites of pain in her sixth month, Tanya cried for her baby and for herself. She felt alive with the fire and yet shredded near death at its kiss. It was over quickly. Tanya writhed and sobbed in the endless darkness and her pregnancy rushed out of her in a flood of bitter heated acid. The bed was sodden, soaked in an empty broken promise. She didn't blame Mel, and yet his knives seemed sharper of late, his games more intense. She wondered as her racking pain slowed, could his long needle probes have killed their child? Just yesterday he had brought her to screams with his penetrations. No, unfair, her mind railed. That was her fault as much as his. 
She craved the blades, encouraged their attacks. The pain made her feel. Its intensity almost made up for the senses long lost, but still imagined. Sometimes the ghost of a peppermint stick washed painfully across her tongue, making her mouth water, or the scent of her father's aftershave before church on a Sunday smothered her to coughing for a second before disappearing, leaving behind an emptiness deeper than the black sea her eyes swam in day after night. She wished more than anything that she could part that cruel curtain and see the man who kissed her and held her and kept her safe as he indulged her twisted needs. She wept then with guilt at her lack of trust in him, guilt at her own inadequacy. She had lost their baby. Even in this, she was only half a woman. Mel only made her feel worse as he waited on her carefully, patiently over the next few days, bringing her soup and toast and helping her to the bathroom, watching to make sure her bleeding didn't continue. I love you, she told him. I'm sorry. Annie hugged her tightly. Two weeks after her miscarriage, Mel came into their bedroom and announced, The roses are in full bloom. Do you want to go? Yes, she answered. And he took her hand dramatically, like a knight come to escort the princess to the ball. The stairs seemed endless, her legs weak and trembly. It had been almost two weeks since she left her bed. Are you sure you're ready? he asked as they walked through the kitchen. She nodded and took a breath. I'll be fine. I need to walk. Step by step, they descended to the garden, the air teasing Tanya's hair and a ghostly kiss that made her sigh. I've missed it out here. Show me the prettiest ones. He took her hand and guided her to a bush of thick, cushiony buds. Tanya held the thorns to her palm and brushed the petals across her cheeks to tickle her nose. Tell me how it smells, she begged. He laughed. Like life, he said, his voice heavy and delicious. It smells like the breath of the sun and the kiss of life. She left his guiding hand then and twirled her way through the garden, stopping at each scratch of thorn across her flesh to kiss and rub the buoyant flowers on top, laughing with a giddiness that had seemed lost to her just an hour before. My roses are beautiful, she laughed. Thank you. There's just one thing, he said, his voice close to her ear, startling her. She thought he remained by the stairs. What's the matter, he said when she jumped at his voice. Did I scare you? No, she said, steadying herself against his shoulder. I just didn't hear you there. I can be very quiet, he agreed. What one thing, she asked. The garden is not quite complete. Something stabbed at Tanya's back and he yelled, Wait, stand still, as she shrieked, backpedaling into a razor-sharp tangle of thorn and flower. Something bit me, she cried out. Mel? His hand reached out to her elbow to steady her. But she was still off balance. She felt the blood running down her back and she twisted, lashing out at the bite, finding her hands punching, not some stray dog at her feet, but hitting Mel's face. Take it easy, he soothed, voice of chocolate tinged with bitter lemon. But she was tumbling away from him, tripped by the slash of a rose stem and sudden vertigo. The world exploded in a rainbow of fireworks across Tanya's black horizon, and with the light, her thoughts blinked out.
Her first thought was that her right leg was broken. A stabbing red-hot scald ran up and down its length. Her next thought was that something had died. My God, what is that smell? she exclaimed, not realizing what she had said until she opened her eyes and saw the man bending over her, using an instrument resembling a cheese grater to peel slices of skin from her thigh. Without thinking, she kneed him in the face and pulled herself backwards, crab-like. What? she began to ask, ignoring the blood running in slow dribbles from her leg and looking around her. Is this... The man was rubbing his chin with his hand. He was the ugliest man Tanya had ever seen. His left eye was glazed over with white. His cheeks were sunken and gray. Her hands had always known that his arms were somehow misshapen, but now she could see the breadth of his deformity. Odd tufts of hair matched with twisted cords of muscle to produce a manged and mangled appearance. His chin jutted sideways, and his nose was just a blob of wide-poured clay. His face and arms were covered with a network of discolored scars, a pink and white crosswork of snip and stitch. You can see, he exclaimed. His grin grew wider, dragging his cheeks into eclipse with his eyes. He scrambled to his feet and lifted his arms. I've built it all for you, he said gesturing around them at the low-ceilinged heat lamps beating down orange and bare between the wooden beams just a couple of feet above them, and the quiet oscillating wall fans. There were no windows, only four concrete walls. All this time she thought it was a spacious garden of open, breezy air beneath the warmth of the sun. It's your very own private garden, Mel bragged. It will never fade or wilt. It will always be here for you to touch. Tanya stared at the basement maze of winding paths amid twined branches of barbed wire. She was surrounded by the glint of metal. Some barbs rusted, no doubt from the spray of her own blood. At the top of most of the barbed wire bushes were the pale flowers she had brushed her face against so many times these past months. Intricate blooms of layered petals painstakingly pieced together by her husband and mounted, somehow, on these bushes of unforgiving, cruel steel. I started with my skin, he explained, pointing to a misshapen rose of brownish black. A strip of Tanya's own bleeding flesh still hung, seemingly forgotten, from his clenched hand. It took me a few tries to learn the best way to cure it without it rotting or turning hard. After that, it was easy. Just harvest and cure, assemble and mount. Your mother gave us this whole section here. He gestured to a group of pasty bloomed bushes, adding, And I did this whole bush here just last week. He pointed to the devilish twining of barb and peach fuzz fine flower next to her. That's the culmination of our love, honey. She looked at the pinkish buds, tightly woven petals seemingly bursting with the need to open and shower their scent to the world. That's our baby, he said, nodding white eyes glinting like the moon on a gray day. Isn't she beautiful? She was delicate to peel, but I think she's the most beautiful rose here. The tears coursed in heated rivers down her face as she touched the baby-soft skin of the rose crafted from her lost child. Then she kissed it and breathed in the scent of her daughter. How could you? she whispered stomach contracting in horror and despair. 
her senses attacked with an intensity sharper than any knife Mel had ever wielded. She could smell the gagging stench of decay of her mother and baby all around her like a palpable thing, a blanket of death. And the everywhere glint of steel and skin made her want to close her eyes again forever. She looked down, unable to face the remains of her baby. Or her husband. She saw the sheen of electric red blood slicking her leg, and saw the scars that pitted and poked their way up her thighs, turning to crisscross trails of a city road map gone mad on her belly. Her once taut and beautifully cream skin was a wrinkled mess of tears and mends, slices and stitches. There was no more beauty there. Her youth was carved away, one poor at a time left behind on the points of Mel's pins and knives and barbed wire roses. There were spots discolored, like the stretched skin of a wax figure that was slowly melting and stretching, taffy in the ghastly machine. Idly, she wondered which of the roses here was made of her own tortured flesh. Surely some of the gouges she'd thought to be innocent wounds of passion at the time had been meant to make harvests for Mel's twisted garden. Are you okay, honey? he asked softly. I know it's probably a lot to take in all at once. She nodded, unable to answer, eyes drawn again and again from her own ruined torso to the tender sculpting of her baby before her, every petal paper-thin, yet still a rose grown thicker than most in life. There were bare stems next to it, barbed branches waiting patiently for their own blood roses to bloom, and Tanya closed her eyes and said, It was better to be blind. She closed her hands around the barren stems until blood dripped brightly to the ground below. She brought her face down as if to sniff the sharpened barbs, and then with a wrench screamed as their tips scraped out her sight. A violent abortion, fake thorns carving new scars in the broken pits of her eyes. Dimly, she heard Mel's usually honeyed voice turn to broken glass as he screamed no, but it didn't stop her from twisting the rose stems this way and that, swirling them deliberately all around until the red fire of pain and betrayal slipped from nausea to numbness to final freeing black. Tanya loved the roses, but she couldn't bear to look at them anymore. Thank you for that, Jun. Okay? Shake it off, children of the night. Or not. Let it linger. <laughs> you can touch base with John Everson at his Dark Arts website. It's at johneverson.com. That's J-O-H-N-E-V-E-R-S-O-N.com. Or just click on the link on our homepage, Tales to Terrify. Com. If you put John Everson into the search block on Amazon, you find quite a lot of his work there, much of it on Kindle ebooks, many of them for that ubiquitous penny less than three bucks charge. So if John is to your taste 
go. And by the way, John is the publisher of Marty Munt's collection, Candy from the Dumpster, and other things that have been expanded from Twilight Tales chapbooks, such as the one Peter Straub effused about way back when the world was young, the last year of the last century. And thank you again, Ruth Stearns. Blood Roses was read for us tonight by Ruth. She was a new voice for us here back in episode 39 when she read Tim Wagoner's wonderful POV zombie tale, Do No Harm. And since then, she's read Rich Schwedick's Surfaces for us in show 59, I believe it was. While Ruth enjoys narration, she also writes speculative fiction, in fact. And as I've often said, writers know that words are substance, so I'm always happy to have a writer with a good voice and a soul that's inclined to the dark to cast the light and shadow required by our kind of tale-telling. In addition to writing and reading, Ruth is a college administrator. You can meet and read Ruth at her blog, letmewritethat.wordpress.com. We're glad to have you back, Ruth. And there we have it. You've had another week in the nook, a Chicago kind of week, in fact. Martin to Everson to... Well, okay. We'll not stretch tonight's farewell into another baseball reference. Be up, be doing, grab your gear. It's raining out there. It's monsoon season in the hood. Oh, listen, as you're wrapping... Have you given any thought to what I mentioned last week? Contributions, that is. Contributions to Tales to Terrify or to the Starship Sofa, to Protecting Project Pulp, to Crime City Central. Just contributions to the District of Wonders. It's all one big pot, so give here to Tales to Terrify or anywhere your genre-yearning fingers take you and it'll all get spread about. Spread the wealth. Okay, be off with you. It is spring out there. Most people like spring. I don't. But I'm not most people. Watch out for the blue people, of course, and do keep your eyes open, your head clear. Things are crawling into bloom out there now. But the perfume of the night is not of flowers. No, 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 not yet. It's of winter leftovers. The nighttime yards and parkways are now oozing. It's mostly mud, muck. They crackle with wind-blown dead weeds. The rattles exhale, shifting shadows. Well, just forget about all that. There is nothing there to harm. And you, you, by now, you could find your way home blindfolded with your eyes uh, shut. By the way, tonight, when you get home, maybe eschew the temptation to nibble before bed. Late-night grub on a tummy filled with treats might just disturb your pleasant dreams. Hmm? 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.